Gospel, chapter 14. We're going to cover verses 1 through 14. So John, chapter 14, the fourth gospel of the New Testament, verses 1 through 14 will be our text and our study here this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and um, John will slip you a Bible and so you can read the text with us and study God's Word together. Very powerful chapter, very important chapter for us to consider this morning, the words of Jesus, as always. All right. And why don't we pray? Father, we ask that this morning as we just continue with our service, that, Lord, we thank you for the time of worship that we've had. And, Lord, as we we sang about uh, the Father and how good he is and to us, Lord, we're going to learn that Jesus is going to, to mention his Father. That he is going to say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Lord, we want to see Jesus clearly. We want to see the Father clearly. We want to see your nature, your love, your provision. Lord, your character in a way that touches our hearts in a very uh, deep way. And so, Father, we do come this morning. We ask that you would teach us, that you make us, uh, Lord, ones that are um, listening to you as our spiritual ears are opened up to the things that Jesus is going to say. And, Lord, I particularly pray for those this morning who perhaps come in with heavy hearts, that, Lord, that you bring comfort as Jesus gives these words of comfort to his disciples who are troubled in heart. So we give you this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so as we continue with this upper room discourse, of course, it is Jesus that is with the 11 that are his, that is the 11 disciples that are left in that upper room, because we saw in the previous chapter that Judas Iscariot, the one who's going to betray Jesus, has left that upper room. And now he is conspiring with the religious leaders to set in motion his arrest that will take place in the garden that is called Gethsemane. And as we move into chapter 14, what we saw uh, setting up and and coming to this chapter is, is that Jesus in that upper room has already told his disciples that not only is one going to betray me, but Peter, you're going to deny me. Even though you're trying to be strong and brave and and declare your faithfulness to me and that you'll lay down your life for me, you are going to deny me. And I'm going to go away and where I'm going that you cannot come. And so I give you a new commandment to love one another just as I've loved you. And we discussed in detail that that's the freshness, that's the newness. In the Old Testament scriptures, they were told to love the Lord their God with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength. The book of Leviticus, chapter 19, declares that they were to love their neighbor. So that commandment to love has been given to them, but Jesus says that this is the freshness, this is the newness, that you're to love one another just as I've loved you. And Jesus is going to demonstrate and prove his love to those disciples. And he does to you and to me. As in a few hours, he's going to be arrested and then go through the sufferings of the cross, dying for the sins of humanity. And as Paul would later on write in Romans chapter 5, that he proved his love, he demonstrated his love for us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus saying that they will know that you're my disciples for your love for one another. So Jesus here in this upper room discourse 
He is just sharing his heart and is going to continue to with them in these last few hours that he has with his disciples. And at this time, as we open up chapter 14, the disciples are very confused. Uh, they, they don't understand everything that's going on. They're troubled in their hearts. Uh, they know that Jesus is talking about dying and, and one is going to betray you, Lord. And they don't know who it is. They didn't know that it was going to be Judas even when he left the room. And you're all going to be made to run away. And Peter, you are going to deny me. And they're trying to be brave and they're trying to be strong. But all of them have heavy hearts that are in this upper room. And Jesus knows that. And he knows the hearts of his disciples. He knows their discouragement and their sorrow and their trouble and, and what it is that they're feeling. And he is now going to give them some words of encouragement, a wonderful promise that he is not leaving them for good, that he will go and prepare a place for them to come and receive them once again. And these are words for us as well. For us who go through life, who can have a troubled heart, that we need words of encouragement and hope. So let's pick up our text at chapter 14, verse 1, as Jesus says to them, and to you and to me, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, in the way you know. So all of us in life, we experience uh, at times a, a troubled heart, don't we? And some of you that are here this morning, perhaps your hearts are heavy. They're hurting. They're, they're troubled. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and there's a circumstance or a situation that you are in or that you're facing that you're confused. You don't know what's coming down, what's going to happen. And maybe you hurt in your heart because of maybe a loss that has come into your life. So that has caused you to be troubled in heart. And the same word that is given to these disciples are the same words that Jesus gives to all of us. And that is, don't let your heart be troubled. And the reason, first of all, is believe, trust in me. You believe in God, believe also in me. To believe in God means to believe in Jesus. And those times of trouble, in all times, we remember that I have personal faith and trust and rest in Jesus Christ. We know that everyone on this side of eternity in, in our lives, that at one time or another, that we will go through difficulties. We will go through trials to one degree or another. And we, as God's people, as we believe in Jesus, as we come to him in faith, we are blessed and we can be thankful because we have God in our lives. We talked about this on Thanksgiving Eve. As Paul was writing to a church, the church at Thessalonica, those Christians who were just young in the Lord, only a few months old when Paul was writing to them. And Paul writes and he says, in everything give thanks. Those Christians were some of the earliest Christians that were persecuted, Gentile Christians that we know of in, in church history. And so they were troubled. They were going through loss. They were going through difficulties. And Paul says, rejoice always and pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. And as we discussed on Wednesday night, we can give thanks because we have the Lord in our lives. A lot of people uh, in, you know, that are linked to us that we know, they don't have the Lord because they don't believe in Him. 
We have the promises of the Lord. We have faith in Jesus Christ. We have the love of the Lord in our lives. And we have the hope of heaven. And that's what Paul is going to be, or that is Jesus going to be talking about. And that's what Paul was reminding them of in that epistle. So we have a God who loves us and we can trust in him and he is good. And as we believe in the Lord, we can rest in his love and in his promises. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Many of you know uh, these verses that tell us that we're to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. You see, oftentimes we want to lean on our own understanding. And the Lord says, trust in me. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. A good verse to remember uh, on this Thanksgiving weekend is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that tells you and I to be anxious for nothing. These guys in, in chapter 14, these, these 11, they're anxious. And what do we do when you and I are anxious? Well, Paul goes on to write, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when we don't understand, when we're trying to lean on our own understanding and we don't understand why things are happening, He desires as we go to Him with thanksgiving, as we are trusting in Him and looking to Him, to, He's going to give us that peace that passes understanding and that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So a real key for us that have troubled hearts is keep trusting and believing in the Lord, acknowledging Him in all your ways. Go to Him in prayer. Go to Him with a heart of thanksgiving. Oh Lord, I know that you see me. You know my heart. You know that I'm troubled. You know that I'm hurting. I come and I thank you for your love and your promises that are for me, and I know that you will direct my paths, and you will do what is good and best for me. And I thank you, Lord. And the peace of God will come into your hearts. I believe that every single one of us, that we want peace in our lives. And we have peace with God as we come to Jesus Christ in faith. But then as we have peace with God, he desires to give us the peace of God in those difficult times, at all times. So we can come to our Father, believe in Jesus. And by the way, a little side note, Jesus here is claiming deity once again. Believe in God, believe also in me, he states. He puts himself here equal with the Father. In this discourse, in chapters 13 through 17 of John, Jesus uses the word Father 53 times. He is the only one that can put himself in the same category as the Father. And so Jesus says, you don't have to be troubled because you have the, the, the hope of the Father. And secondly, you have the hope of heaven, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions, as we read again. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, or since I go, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. We have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which means that we have the hope of heaven. Amen? Heaven is a real place. It's a glorious place. It's a wonderful place, but it is also an exclusive place, as we're going to learn here in our text this morning. You believe in God, believe also in Jesus. 
I'm preparing, he says to his disciples, a home for you personally, individually, and not only will you be in heaven, but what really makes heaven heaven, and please remember this, is that the Lord is going to be there with us. Sometimes we can kind of just get an earthly perspective of heaven. What I mean by that is, as he says that I go, and in my Father's house are many mansions, so we picture this huge mansion that, that we're going to live on, on Gloria Street and Pearly you know, Boulevard. And, and it's, it's you know, this, you know, all this huge stuff and you know, glorious mansions. And, and we know that in the new heaven and new earth, it tells us that there are going to be gates made of pearl. There's going to be streets made of gold. We know that. But sometimes, and particularly the prosperity teachers, they will emphasize that. I believe that Jesus is preparing a place for you and for me, for the church. And it will be glorious. And it will be wonderful. And I want to point out some things in these two verses that we just read to realize there are many mansions, he says, or literally dwelling places in heaven. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. It must be very, very glorious and splendor and and just awesome because he's been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, hasn't he? But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul the Apostle, he would reflect on the time that he would be caught up into heaven, into paradise. And he writes that he heard things and saw things that were indescribable, unlawful for me to utter. Earlier in that epistle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for you note-takers, he would write that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, what Paul was writing to the Corinthian believers is that heaven is going to be so glorious, it's going to be so wonderful, it's going to be so incredible that we cannot fully understand it all or comprehend it all how glorious it's going to be. So the afflictions that we go through now, and all of us go through those afflictions, are nothing in comparison to what awaits us in heaven. The afflictions that we go through now, they are painful, aren't they? And they hurt. And they cause a heaviness of heart and a sorrow of heart. The afflictions that we go through now cause confusion and can create fear in our hearts. But Paul, the apostle who went through so much in his own life, says there's nothing in comparison to what awaits for us in heaven. So in other words, you guys that are so troubled right now, I need to go away, he's telling them. And I'm going to go and die for you. And I'm going to rise from the grave and I will ascend into heaven. And there you're going to be with me. So don't be troubled in your hearts. As Christians, we really should be looking forward to heaven. We should be looking forward to going and being with the Lord for all eternity. We should look forward to our dwelling place because it's going to be so glorious. But as we consider how glorious heaven is going to be and what truly makes it glorious is the Lord's going to be there, all His splendor and glory and His light, and we get to fellowship with Him for all eternity. But many Bible teachers here tell us that Jesus isn't just talking about a, a physical new mansion that He's preparing for us, but perhaps He's making reference to a new heavenly body that we're going to receive in heaven. We know that because Jesus rose from the grave, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because he bodily rose from the grave, 
that we have the promise of the resurrection as well. And the resurrection means that we're going to have new heavenly bodies for all eternity that's going to last forever. The bodies that we now have are going to wear out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. All of us, that our bodies were wear out. And as we get older, and as our bodies are wearing out, we groan. And the older I get, the more I groan. You know, it's like on Thursday morning, a lot of some of us here and my family, we run the, the 5K turkey trot in every year. It just gets a little bit harder and a little bit tougher for me. And I groan a little bit more every year. So here he is. He's writing about this, this new heavenly body that we're going to get in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But he also reminds us that in that chapter, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, when we take our last breath here, we are received by Jesus. To be absent from the body as uh, our bodies wear out, but our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And again, we are with him and we will see him. We will be received by our Lord who loves us, who's provided that hope for us. And we will be with him and see the glory and the splendor of God. And not only do we have a dwelling place in heaven, but we'll get that eventually that new heavenly habitation, that new body, uh, a celestial body, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that will take place at the resurrection, a new heavenly body that will last for all eternity. But I want us to notice something here in verse 3. Not only is he preparing a place for us, for you individually, personally, but he says, I will come again. Underline that, I will come again. Jesus promised that he would come back. He says, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And again, many Bible teachers and scholars, and I agree with them, believe that Jesus here is making a reference to what is called the rapture of the church, that event that is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Harpazo, it's the Latin word rapture where we get the English word raptured. It's a sudden taking, a sudden snatching. We shall be harpazzled together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So comfort one another, Paul writes at the end of that chapter with these words. You who are going through it, the church at Thessalonica, you who are grieving because those who have been put to death for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ know this, that the Lord's coming back. And each one of those chapters of 1 Thessalonians, he mentions to wait for the Lord. The Lord's going to come back. There's going to be a time when he's going to come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. The rapture of the church, remember when we talk about the return of the Lord, is when Jesus comes for his church. We will meet the Lord in the air. There's going to be a generation of Christians where the trumpet will blow, and suddenly, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the twinkling of an eye, not the blink of an eye, but the twinkle of an eye, 
that we'll be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air and we'll have our new heavenly bodies. At that time, the resurrection takes place for you and for me. And then we will be tucked away in heaven as we will receive him. He says that where I am, there you may be also. Where is he going to be? In heaven. And we will be with him in heaven having dinner with the Lord and what is called the marriage feast of the Lamb. Meantime, what's going to happen here on earth? As we know from the prophetic scenario in the book of Revelation, that tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period is going to be taking place on the earth where God's wrath is going to be poured out on a Christ-rejected world. And at the end of that seven-year period, then we will come back with the Lord in what is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the rapture of the church is when he comes for his church. The second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back literally, physically, he comes back with the church. We will come back with him, and he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years. And then after that, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and there's going to be no more sin, no more tears, no more death. No more sickness, no more disease, none of that. And thus we will be with the Lord forever. I'm reminding you quickly of these truths because, listen, Christian, that is your future. And that is my future. It's not a fairy tale. It's not myth. It is true. Jesus said, I'm going to come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Whether our bodies were out here, we're going to go home and be with the Lord, or whether we're raptured up one day, or, you know, as we will come back with him, when he comes to rule and reign, we'll be with him for all eternity. That is our future. And the challenges and the problems and the hurts and the pain that we go through now is the worst that it will get for us. Because Jesus has prepared a place for us in heaven. And that causes me to be comforted. To not have such a troubled heart in this life. But the peace of God in my heart because of the promise of heaven. And Jesus continues here in verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Or how can we know the way? Now these disciples have walked with Jesus for over three years. They've heard his teachings. They have seen his works. He has spoken specifically of his crucifixion and his resurrection. That he's going to be glorified. It's the hour has now come for me to be glorified. And he's going to go back to the Father. And Jesus telling them that he's going to go away. He's preparing a place for them. And where I go, the way you know. And, and now as they seem to have been told all of these things, and Jesus has repeated these things to them, they should be understanding some of this. But we know that in this upper room at this time, actually they're kind of clueless. Jesus saying, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to go away. Uh, where are you going? How can we know the way? What's going on here? And you would think that the Lord would be so frustrated with them, saying that, you know what, you guys are clueless. You don't know what's going on. Haven't you been listening to me? What do you mean you don't know the way? But as I think about this, I'm really glad that Thomas asked this question. How can we know the way to heaven? It's a question that every individual that has ever lived needs to answer. And Jesus' answer in the next verse is going to put an exclamation mark, leaving no doubt how we can know the way to heaven. Verse 6, 
you want to underline it in your Bible, that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus telling them and telling us very plainly, very honestly, very pointedly, let's make no mistake about this. It's a real simple answer to understand to Thomas' question. How do we know the way? But it is a very simple very easy answer to understand, but it's also a very powerful statement and a very exclusive statement as well. Jesus said, I am the way. He did not say, I am a way or one of many ways. He said, I am the truth. He didn't say that I'm one of many truths. There are many truths that are out there. He said, I am the way, singularly. I am the truth. I am the life and no one. Do you realize that no one in the original language in the Greek means no one? Zippo. Zero. No one in the Greek means just that. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how hard is that to understand? It isn't hard to understand. But the question is for everyone is, are they going to believe what Jesus has declared? We have seen throughout John's gospel and read that Jesus has made it so clear to us that he is the way singularly, exclusively to the Father to heaven. I am, again, this is the sixth statement of I am in John's gospel. He has linked himself to the Father where he has said, if you believe in me, you believe in the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. And as you come and believe in me, that you will have the promise of eternal life. You'll never hunger and thirst again. I am the door, the door to eternal life. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the claims and, you know, of Jesus is very clear. The question is not in the claims of Jesus. It's clear what he is saying. Where are you going? I'm going to go to the Father. And how do we know the way? I am the way to the Father. No one comes to him except through me. It is one of the most powerful, one of the most profound statements concerning our salvation in all of the Bible. People get upset with you and me. And perhaps you've experienced this. Where they will say to us, how can you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? You're narrow-minded. Have you ever had somebody say that to you when you're sharing the gospel to them? I think some of you have. And what I answered them is, I didn't say it. Jesus did. He's the one that made that claim, and I believe it. And the reason I believe it is he's the only one that died for me. He was put into a grave. He rose again after three days. He conquered sin and death. He validated what he did on the cross. He is truly Lord of all. He is King of all kings. Yes, I believe his claims because of what he did and what he did in conquering sin and death. I receive it. And you can call me narrow-minded if you wish. But Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 7, as narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's interesting that you can talk to many people, and I'm sure that you can, those who are linked to you in your life. And you can ask them about heaven and eternal life and, and what's your perspective? How do you think you know, that you'll get to heaven? Or is there a heaven? And you'll get all kinds of answers, won't you? And there are those who believe that they will 
come and, and um, they will tell you that um, even those who maybe have gone to church at some time in their life or maybe presently even going to church, that they'll answer, well, I'm a good person. Or God loves everybody. Or God wouldn't send anybody to hell. There are all kinds of answers that people have. And more and more we're seeing the acceptance of kind of a pluralistic belief that there are many ways to heaven, other journeys and paths to God. And that false belief is even being embraced more by those who are behind the pulpit and unfortunately more and more Christians are buying into it. And it is quite alarming. I think that if you stood outside and I'm lumping all the churches in together of, of many churches here in Greeley and you ask the people, why should God let you into heaven? I think you'd get multiple answers. You'd get answers like, I'm a good person. I belong to the church. I, you know, I, I give to the church. There are all kinds of answers and we know there's only one answer. That I am a sinner that has repented and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you hear anyone that says that there are other ways to heaven besides Jesus Christ believing in him, believing that he died for you, that he rose from the grave and is alive, that it is only through the atoning work of the cross that we have salvation, if anyone else says that there is another road, there is another way, there is another truth to eternal life that excludes Jesus, they are wrong. And they are deceived. And they are false. We know that Matthew records in chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus' prayer in the garden. He's going to be heading to the garden here shortly. He's going to be uh, sweating great drops of blood. And in that prayer, he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of suffering and death. Father, if it is possible... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Shortly he would say to his disciples in that garden when they came to arrest him, that don't you know that I'm going to take on the cup that the Father has given me to drink of, the cup of suffering and death. If there was any other way, Jesus was praying, Father, if there's any other way that a man or woman can come to you, can have salvation, Without me going to the cross, if there's any other way, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't have to go to the cross. If a person can be saved by believing in another God, if a person can be, you know, one that has salvation, uh, be righteous before you, Lord, because they're a good person or they're religious enough or they're good enough or they have done enough, you know, things to, to please you, Lord, or um, got enough prestige, riches, whatever it might be. If there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus said for this very hour I came to this world to die for sinful humanity. Folks, we need to stand on, especially today, there is no neutral ground on this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, period. So Jesus makes it very clear for us. 
And he continues talking about the nature of the Father now. Verse 17, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him in verse 9, I, Have I been with you so long, and, and, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? So all throughout Jesus' ministry, he has linked himself to the Father, hasn't he? In such a way, if you know me, believe in me, if you've seen me, you know and believe and have seen the Father. Because the Father and I are one. And Jesus here is saying to his disciples, you don't have to be troubled in your heart because number one, you believe in me. Second of all, you have the hope of heaven. And thirdly, you know the nature of the Father. Jesus is saying, if you know me and seen me, then you know and have seen the Father. That's the one thing that should bring comfort to you guys. And now this time it's Philip that is confused. And Philip pipes up and he says, show us the Father, that which suffices, that'll help us. And Jesus responds to Philip and I get a sense that Jesus is a little disappointed, disappointed here. Philip, oh Philip. How long have you been with me? Don't you get it? Haven't you realized it? That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So what is Philip asking? What he's asking here is, is show us God. Show us the Father, his nature, what he is like. And that is why I believe that Jesus is a bit disappointed with his question here. Because Jesus is saying, and has been in these three years that they've walked with him. That if you want to know what God is like, if you want to see God, if you want to truly know him, then look to me and know me. Philip, you've been with me all this time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And of course, John would write in this gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. In other words, Jesus shows us and declares to us the nature and the essence of the Father. Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So again, we read here in John's Gospel that Jesus is making it very clear that I am God. If you want to know the nature and the character and the heart of God, then look to me. Again, you talk with people. And I talk with people. And maybe there might be somebody here today that has a different idea of what God is like or who he is than what the Bible declares. There is the Eastern religious beliefs that they don't believe in a personal God. They believe that God is impersonal. Some people picture God as a mean, judgmental, angry you know, God wanting to destroy them if they get out of line. Doesn't care for them, doesn't love them. We are seeing on Wednesday night that Job is struggling with a little bit of that. He believes God is against him in the sufferings that he's gone through. He, he's trusting in the Lord, but he's struggling. He's, he's sharing his emotions through all the loss, and he thinks that God is against him. There are people that go through life that have this unhealthy fear of God, terror of God, that he's going to get them, and, and it'd be better if, if I don't submit my life to him fully. There are others that believe that God is like a genie in a lamp or some kind of celestial Santa Claus, 
You know, I'll name it and I'll claim it. Uh, I'll get what I want. And we need to understand something very important for you and I as Christians. If you want to know the heart and the nature of God, then you look at Jesus. He has revealed the Father to us. Let's continue reading in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus has been declaring in his ministry to the Jews, the, the people of Israel, that I do not speak my own words, I do not work apart from the Father. You recall that in chapter 5, remember he healed that man that was lame on the Sabbath day, and they were so upset, the religious leaders, that he did that healing on the Sabbath day. You can't do that, it's unlawful. By what authority do you do this? And Jesus answered him and said that I've been working just as my father is working. I speak the words that he speaks. I only do the will of my father. So if you got a beef with my works that I'm doing and the words that I'm speaking and what it is that I'm doing, then you have a beef with the father. And verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also in greater works than these. He will do because I go my way. Uh, I go to my father, that is. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the prosperity teachers, the name and claim it guys, they love these verses. They teach their false gospel. You see, Jesus said, whatever you ask in the name of Jesus, he will do it. You just got to have enough faith. You just got to release that faith. Here's a question that I've never heard answered, but I've asked it. To those who are into the prosperity movement, how much faith do you have to have? Can you tell me how much faith you have to have? Because Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, if I put a mustard seed on my finger here, you guys couldn't see it. That if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So how much faith do you need? So what is it that Jesus is saying here? What is it that he means? That those who believe in me, first of all, will do greater works. I mean, Jesus did some pretty incredible works, hasn't he? We've seen it through this gospel. That he healed the lame. That he healed the blind. He, he fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. We know that he was one that, that he raised the dead, Lazarus, who had been in the tomb for four days. He would give sight to those who were blind. He would cleanse the lepers. He would walk on water. He healed every kind of sickness and disease and freed the demoniacs. So how can we do greater works than that? And also, I've asked for many things, many even material things that wasn't given to me. I asked in Jesus' name, does that mean that I don't have enough faith? Or maybe I don't really believe because it didn't come to pass what I asked? And I've talked to many over the years, that have been very confused over these verses. And I hear the guy on TV says, you've just got to release that faith. You've got to have enough faith. You've got to plant your seed face and all of this. That, they will say, which wasn't intended to mean what Jesus is saying here and what he means here. They would come to Jesus and they would say, what works must we do, the works of God? 
And Jesus responded by saying that the works of God is this, that you believe on him whom he has sent, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go into the book of Acts, we know that the apostles, they did many miracles, didn't they? And I believe that miracles happen today. I don't dismiss that at all. But the physical miracles have never been in greater magnitude and scope than what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. The great multitudes in the Galilee region, the the incredible uh, miracles that he was doing. But what did happen after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven is that the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples in Acts 1 and they would take the gospel from Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 2 that Peter, that he would stand up, he would give the gospel. 3,000 got saved on that day. The next chapter, 2,000 more got saved. And the gospel would spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth. Jesus was limited in, you know, being in one place at one time. And for the most part, he stayed in the house of Israel. The disciples doing greater works in that they would take the good news of the gospel throughout the world, and it is a work that continues today. Because the greatest work, the greatest miracle, is a heart that is given over to Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying here that I'm going to leave you, and when I do... The work of the Father is going to continue in you and through you in reaching others to tell them that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then if you ask anything in my name, I will do. You see, asking in Jesus' name is just not attaching a phrase at the end of your prayer and your request. It's more than just using magical words. God is not a celestial Santa Claus. If I have the right formula, then he'll give me whatever it is that I want. And whatever I'm asking, the key to remember is to ask in Jesus' name means that I'm asking whatever in Jesus' name is in harmony with his nature, his character, and his will, right? If somebody was to say, I'm going to ask something in Pastor Jeff's name, which doesn't mean much, but if they, they're asking, for whatever reasons, a request from somebody, I'm coming in the name of Pastor Jeff, and they start saying foolish things or asking for ridiculous things and things like that. It's like, don't use my name. Don't do that. And anybody that does anything in your name or is representing you in some way, you want it to be where they're doing it according to your integrity, right? Your character and what... Your belief is, and so Jesus, in asking in Jesus' name, you are asking according to his character, his will, his integrity. His nature and character is not that of a celestial Santa Claus. I don't see it. But his will is to conform you into the image of Jesus. For you to die to self and to follow him. For you to know him and to love others just as he's loved us. And yes, the Lord does bless anything that we have, that every good gift comes from above. It comes from him. And he blesses and he does. But he is more interested in us having an eternal, heavenly perspective and to be submitted to him and trust in him, whatever we may have. And here's something that I believe that we need to consider, that he knows that for many of us and for some of us, that if it was just like, you know, whatever I want, I get. Whatever I name it and claim it, that I'm going to 
receive it, that we would take the goods and we would run. That it would actually hinder our fellowship and closeness and what the Lord is doing in our lives. That's why the Lord says you keep an eternal perspective, not a temporary perspective. Be content with what you have. Give thanks in everything. And know that he's desiring to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication there is all good things. And if it is good, he's not going to withhold it from you. But if it's not good, he's going to keep it away from you. And we can say, Lord, thank you that this thing must not be good for me, at least at this point. Maybe you got something better. And I think that all of us, that we prayed for something, and we've been able to look back and say, thank you, Lord, that you did not give me that at that time and my requests and my you know, demands or whatever it may be. Yes, we give the Lord our requests. We give him our desires. But delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. The key is delight in the Lord. And as you delight in the Lord and draw close to Him, and as you're trusting in Him, that His desires are going to be put into your heart so your desires are in line with the Lord. So the prayer of faith is, Lord, whatever it is that you want. Amen? That's the prayer of faith. Whatever you have for me. Here's my desires. Here are my requests. Here's what we're praying about. Lord, this would be a blessing, I think, in my life. And if it's good then he'll give it to you. If not, then there's a reason because he wants the very best for you and he's not going to withhold it from you. Or maybe he sees that it's, it's going to harm you in your closeness with the Lord or maybe he has something better. But I can trust in him and rest in him because he's already given me the very best, the Father, and that is his son, right? He did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for all of us that we have an eternal inheritance because he goes and prepares a place for you and for me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible text that we just went over in, in John chapter 14 and making it very clear that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus would go and he would prove his love by going to that cross, dying for every single one of us. In my prayer, if there is anybody here in the sanctuary or maybe you're here in the building, maybe out in a coffee shop, and maybe you thought, well, I've gone to church or, you know, I believe in God generally and I'm okay. Do you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you are a sinner and that's why Jesus went and died for you? And you need to turn to him, repent, and surrender your life to him. And know that the promise is true. That we have eternal life through Jesus. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And if that is you this morning, you don't know if you have a personal relationship. It's not about religion. Religion is just methods. And actually religion can end up holding you in bondage. Jesus came to set you free because you have a relationship with him. That's the way to heaven. And Jesus went to the cross to save you because of his love for you. Will you turn to him if you're not right with the Lord? 
If you're thinking you're good enough or I just come to church, that's good enough. It's not. A church can't save you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. The atoning work of Jesus, knowing that he rose from the grave. And he says, come, believe in me. Surrender your heart to me. And today is the day of salvation. Will you pray with me? If you don't know that you have that salvation, make it clear today before you leave this place because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And you pray, Jesus, I come and I understand the words of Jesus that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so I come to the truth and to the one who gives life, Jesus Christ. And I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you did die for my sins on that cross. And you were put into a tomb and you're alive. Speak into my heart right now. So now I open up my heart to you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Oh, thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving me life that comes through you alone. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, will you put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all? God bless you guys. Anybody else? Not to be afraid. Just want to encourage you and pray with you and for you. Anybody else at all? Father, I thank you for those who have made commitments to Christ and are just proclaiming their faith. And Lord, I pray for all of us that, Lord, that we would not be troubled in our hearts because we have the promise of heaven, the promise of your Son, and we know the nature of the Father. To look to Jesus for our salvation, for blessing, for everything that we need. And I pray that that life, that abundant life, would be experienced as we just trust in you and rest in you, knowing that you're not going to withhold anything that is not good for us but to keep that eternal perspective. So Lord, we thank you for our salvation more than anything. And I do pray at this Christmas season, as we gather with family, we gather with friends, co-workers, whoever it might be, that we would share light and truth with them and share that Jesus came to this world born in Bethlehem because he came on a mission to die for sinful humanity. And that is our only hope, is through Jesus that we wouldn't be afraid of that message. But we would love people enough to give them truth. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I pray that you'd bless the rest of our day and our week coming up. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? For you who need prayer, for those making commitments to